You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Glenn, um, this is a little trivia nugget kind of thing that I'd heard before, but my son brought it up tonight, so I thought that'd be a a good thing to bring up. Uh, When was the First World War first referred to as the First World War? Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, wasn't it considered? Wasn't it called like the Great War or something? The back? Great War was was a very common term for it, exactly between the World Wars. Yeah. Um, but uh, at what point did they decide? You know what? First World War. That's what we're going to go with here. As as uh, even even just as a suggested um, uh, a term. Well, I'm going to actually guess it happened after World War Two. That's my guess. So I'm going to ah. say 1950 something. Okay, actually, uh, 1918. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, they were they were pretty pessimistic, I guess, about it. Um, the, the I guess there there was uh, a uh, this is in at Harvard a uh, big debate with the historians as to what to call the war. Um, someone said, "Let's just call it the war," and there someone then said, "That's that's never going to last." Um, how about the German War? And they're like, "Well, no, we don't want to give." credit to the Germans, you know? Um, and uh, then the historian suggested, well, how about the World War? And like, okay, that's better. And then the First World War, uh, in order to prevent from people forgetting that the history of the world was the history of war. Um, so, uh, correct, the Great War was um, what people were, between the wars, usually referred to it as uh, but even that title was originally applied to the no- Napoleonic War. In the U.S., it was officially the World War. Um, World War II uh, hit was you know in, used in newspapers uh, as early as 1939. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's also from uh, that uh, again that British TV show QI. Um, yeah. So um, you can you know look it up there if you want to hear comedians talk about it instead of. Yeah, just us two fingerprint schmucks. That's uh, that's that's actually pretty cool and uh, I, obvious now that I think about it because I, I've seen enough um, World War Two newspapers where they're right. referring to it as WW two, so obviously they would have had to have had WW one. So yes, that uh, <laughs> that seems silly of me not to have realized that. Well, you know, it. it um, but still, nineteen eighteen. That's that's a that's pessimistically early for. <laughs> For it to be called the First World War. Right, right, right. Um, Impressive. Yeah, exactly that too. All right, Glenn, um, we are going to be talking about some DNA stuff today. Uh, a little, you know, off our normal pace, but uh, DNA's been in the news, um, especially with the uh, the Golden State Killer case. So uh, we, we talked about it and thought we'd discuss um, a couple of cases where this familial DNA topic has come up. Right. And uh, as we alluded to in a, a 
previous episode, that, you know, we've been wanting to look at some other kinds of things and branch out a little bit. And uh, this one I thought might uh, start a series of, of episodes, too, where we might be able to get into some other cases, have some DNA folks come on and talk a little bit about DNA. And, of course, we'll always try to tie it back to fingerprints because that's who we are. But it, it's a little departure from our, from our usual uh, fingerprint research talk. Right, right. Um, so what uh, remind me, which one are we going to get to first, the Golden State case or this Idaho case that, uh, that we've been talking about? Well, I think it'd be cool to start with the, the Golden State case because everyone's very familiar with, with this case. You know, in the news, it's getting a lot right, of attention. Right. But as we're going to see as we delve into this a little bit, that we're going to take a, a turn and focus on another case where it didn't quite turn out exactly the same way, and it highlights right. what some people might perceive as some issues with the familial database searching, and, they, and it, it's good to explore that a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. In reviewing, preparing for this episode, I saw a whole lot more issues and problems come up with that this other case than with the Golden State case. Not that there's not you know issues or concerns with the Golden State case as well, but. Uh, it definitely seemed you know, more obvious with the uh, with the Idaho one, but we'll get to that here in a minute. So the Golden State Killer case. Um, so a quick overview, going back back to the seventies, there was uh, a series of crimes that eventually got, all got linked together. Uh, at first, uh, besides were... the crime of polyester. The... Hey, don't speak ill of the 70s. We're, we're both from that era. <laughs> true. Um, <laughs> true. True. And, and who knows? I mean, all, all things are, are circular. You don't never know when that fashion's coming back for good, you know. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the fashion of polyester and then everything being a shade of brown, tan, and yellow. Um, oh, avocado refrigerators. Yeah. I had one. Had one growing uh, We... We had more of the goldenrod, um, but um, so in the seventies, the Vesalia Ransacker uh, was a crime spree of mainly burglaries, but one uh, suspected murder uh, in with this um, this crime spree in California, in Vesalia, California, from seventy four to seventy five. Um, the murder uh, from the this Vesalia Ransacker. A group of crimes uh, is not has not been linked to the uh, you know with the DNA testing that is now linking all these other crimes to the to this new arrestee with the Golden State Killer case, um, but he, he is still suspected in all those crimes. Obviously, the burglaries are way past the statute of limitations, um, but the the murder that would still you know be chargeable isn't one of the charges that they've currently leveled against him. Um, so next up is another group of crimes originally believed to be a separate person, but now um, you know, linked through evidence, some evidence and, and MO especially, is the East Area Rapist. Uh, so from 76 to 79 in a three-year uh, period, uh, they've linked together uh, 51 rapes and homicides, um, mostly... In, did you say in a three-year period? Yeah, from summer of seventy six to the summer of seventy nine, in just three years, uh, oh, there was there was basically more than one a month that yeah. entire time. There were only there were only a handful of months where where something didn't happen. Um, so this is mainly east of Sacramento, um, in what's now Rancho Cordova and, and some other areas, um, but they're also uh, linked to some other 
uh, towns like Concord or San Jose, closer to San Francisco, again, usually more than one a month, 51 uh, rapes and homicides uh, in this uh, this time frame, uh, including um, a time where the uh, the suspect was uh, taunting the police, newspapers, and victims with phone calls and letters. Like, like it's what? amazing. Can you, uh, can you give an example? Uh, well, in some cases, um, they suspect that he he would call ahead of time in a lengthy reconnaissance uh, scheme to figure out people's schedules. Mm. But there are also times where he um, or he, he was called... a telemarketer, free telemarketing <laughs> tapes. Exactly. But he or he would call and uh, threaten or taunt the victims uh, after the crime had been committed. Wow. Let's see. Let me skip down. That's a, a special bit. kind of sick. Oh, absolutely! It's just terrible. The uh, phone calls, including uh, you know, saying I'm the Eastside rapist, you're never going to catch me. Uh, like um, some papers were found, like near some scenes, with a detailed sketch of the neighborhood, uh, with the word punishment scrawled on the backside, and one looks like a page from a journal where he just rambles on and on about how much he hated the sixth grade, hmm. um, and it's some pretty messed up stuff, uh, obviously for a serial killer. Uh, then that um, you know, kind of ends in 79, and then picking up in 79 down in Southern California, uh, first in Santa Barbara, but then all the way down to Orange County, uh, is the case called the original Night Stalker. Now, the Night Stalker is another L.A. case um, where fingerprints were actually famously, in APHIS, famously used to catch Richard Ramirez. Um, this later on became known as the original Night Stalker case with... Uh, rapes and murders uh, in the Southern California area. And here, he would typically uh, break in on couples, have them both tied up, um, and then uh, rape the woman and uh, and then kill them both. Most of them, most of those ends in 1981. There's, an, there's one that's kind of outside the, the normal range in 86 that's also suspected of uh, being part of this uh, group of Attacks. Um, I don't think that one's been again linked with the the new DNA evidence. Um, but uh, hey, Eric, did did they think that the he was the Night Stalker for some period of time? That that this might have been the same person. Uh, you know, he's living on the Bay Area, moves down to the LA area. Did they they think was that their um, theory? Um, so no, it doesn't look like it. Um, he was originally called the Night Stalker in. Um, in, again, from 79 to 81, but uh, they they post-renamed him to the original Night Stalker after, later on in the 80s, Richard Ramirez more famously gained that name. Um, again, just kind of scanning through some of the, uh, the Wikipedia page, um, that's, what, that's what it seems to be. It doesn't look like those crimes were, uh, were linked uh, originally. In 2001... This is when uh, DNA results uh, finally link up uh, all these cases from, you know, for the most part, the, the East Area Rapist up in Sacramento, also with this original Night Stalker case down in Southern California. Uh, DNA at least links up that these crimes were all committed by the same person. And then that's when they decide, okay, let's, let's rename kind of the entire now group of uh, crimes as the Golden State Killer. Got it. Rebranding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in 
So, um, everyone, you know, the news, they talk, are talking about this familial DNA testing that's, that's linked this guy up. Right, I, because if he had been in the database, they would have identified him years ago. So, he's not in the database. So, yeah, I, I went, you know, looking, I'm sure you did too, figuring out, trying to, trying to learn more about exactly what happened here uh, in this case. And um, so what it looks like is, so my thought from initially hearing like the news stories, they kept talking about Ancestry.com or 23andMe and, you know, some of these other uh, companies where you can get familial, or get your DNA tested as part of this, um, I don't know, look at like what your heritage is. Like, are you from, you know, Western Europe or you know, uh, Southeast Asia or, you know, wherever. Um, what percentage Native American are you? Um, Have you ever done it, by the way? I don't think so. I think my dad did it. I can't remember what the results were. I'd have to talk to him about that. My dad's always been really big into genealogy and other people in my family as well in, in researching that. And part of this and then also the other case out of Idaho kind of took me kind of back into that world of, of looking through different websites and, and finding out different things. So that was kind of interesting as well. Uh, but what it looks like happened in, in this uh, case here is that the, the police didn't, you know, submit their, their, uh, their sample to 23andMe and then, you know, try to get some sort of court order out of this. What they did is they worked up um, some uh, YSTR uh, info on the sample um, and then did a, a search through kind of an independent website. So first, um, a little breakdown, uh, YSTRs. And uh, you've know, you got your 23 pairs of chromosomes um, and, you know, the big deciding factor between dude or uh, chica is uh, the X and Y chromosomes. Um, women have two X's, men have an X and a Y. And so, more so, and even more so these days. <laughs> so the idea is, especially in a sexual assault kind of case, um, where you may have some really good DNA evidence, but it may be mixed up between the suspect and the victim, if you can isolate out the uh, uh, different alleles from the Y chromosome, those are you know only going to belong to um, the male perpetrator if if the victim is female. Um, so that was done here in this case, but it also is a big uh, thing that's being used on a lot of these genealogical websites because the Y chromosome is passed down through the male uh, uh, line. You know, your if you have a Y chromosome, then you're a guy and um, you've gotten that from your father and you pass it along to your son, the same Y chromosome. Um, and it doesn't really change much at all, except over long periods of time with, with the slight mutations. So if you isolate someone's um, profile for their Y chromosome, that's also the profile for every male member of that family. Um, your uh, paternal grandfather, paternal great-grandfather, and then all cousins and second cousins um, that have come down through uncles and great-uncles and all the dudes on the always dude half of um, a family tree. 
Yeah, and and I will say that that really surprised me because I was under the impression that these databases were looking more at STR, and even though that can be part of some of them, I'm now beginning to realize that these databases, many of the ones that look at genealogy, as you point out, were Y-chromosome databases and mitochondrial DNA, and which uh, I'm assuming maybe you're going to get to in a moment, but same thing as the the Y-STRs, it's just, it's it's DNA that's passed through the maternal link and through cell uh, cells, mitochondria that aren't, you know, nucleated. So you'll have it in hair and fingernails and teeth and bones and those sorts of things. So, so in these databases, you've got the Y chromosomal information passed along through fathers, and then the mitochondrial information passed along through mothers. And that that it completely makes sense that, that that would be the approach from a genealogical standpoint right. as opposed to what I was thinking when you get these databases that are looking more at your um, your genetic profile, race, and you know, you know, those kind of things. That I'd expect more from the STR since I look at pop stamps. And I think that's the case for when it's like you're five percent armenian you know i think that is the case for that part right but when you're actually doing the family tree part uh it's looking like you said at, at wise and mito um the mito side it, it everybody's got the mito uh, mitochondrial dna um you just get it from your mom so it's not just like only women have mitochondria um and mitochondrial dna uh, everybody has it you just get it from your mom um so you're going to have the same as your mom and your maternal grandmother and then all your cousins on on male and female on that side of the family yeah and 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 it's pretty robust too that most of the the change and when it comes to the mitochondrial dna like you said you don't get many changes you can go back hundreds of years in in these genealogical trees well i mean even further than that i mean they've they've used the the mitochondrial uh testing to go back to you know, estimate that that the entire race, human right. race, has descended from a a small tribe of like a handful. I think less than twenty uh, breeding females, um, uh, maybe even down to single digits. I'd have to look back up the paper I read on that, but um, it was just amazing that that you know to to trace things back and and think of you know, everyone everywhere across the planet coming, you know, being descendants yeah. from this small tribe. That, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's something, the farther you go back, the, the you know, the wider the, you know, the error, the, your comp, you know, the confidence right. level changes or whatever. Right. So what they, they did here is they, they, they worked up the genetic profile of this uh, Y chromosome, looking specifically at the markers that uh, that these genetic databases are looking for because there's there's I mean again most of human DNA is going to be the same between different people which was what makes us all human is that we've you know we've basically got the same DNA except for these tiny little things where you have differences so there's um, there's 36 markers specifically that they're looking for on the Y chromosome uh, so the police and investigators they worked up these 36 markers. And then they went to a, a website uh, called GEDmatch, uh, G-E-D-M-A-T-C-H, um, which is uh, still online. You can still just go to GEDmatch.com. Uh, did you go there earlier today, Glenn? Nope, I did not. I went nope. to the I went to the other the other database. Uh, the Y search. Yep. Okay. 
So um, Ysearch is the other uh, big database, but from kind of looking at things, it's kind of not working anymore. It's kind of been allowed to kind of die. Uh, and I, I've, I kind of searched through other genealogical data, uh, like message boards, and they're like, yeah, you can't really you know do any searches there. And uh, if you upload data, it's it, it won't work. Um, but uh, GEDmatch is still um, going strong. So, uh, like I said, I, I go there, and sure enough, it, you know, I start typing in names and stuff, and you could either search by names, or you can search, uh, if you have genetic information, search by that. And the way it works is um, a, a user interested in genealogy would go get their DNA tested at, say, 23andMe or Ancestry.com, uh, log on to that website uh, to get their raw data f- of the actual um, YSTR data, download it, and then if they you know if they wanted to, uh, upload it to this GEDmatch database along with um, along with their family tree information, um, and that's the part that I was more familiar with, but just with working with my dad is um, there's software out there where you can just enter in. You know, this is my mom, this is my dad, their names, when they were born, when they died. And then, you know, do that on and on for ancestors and descendants. And you can save it as a big uh, database file. And then people then upload that file online. And then you get this kind of patchwork of, okay, well, that this this whole family tree. And then, you know, these people, you know, married into this family, that kind of adds on to that database. And the databases can just keep growing and growing as this kind of patchwork of people just voluntarily uploading who their family is grows and grows and grows. Crowdsource data from from everybody. But what I hadn't realized, because I I haven't really been, you know, looking at this for a while, is that people are starting to do, when they do that, also upload their family's um, profile for... Uh, YSTRs, and you can then link it, you know, okay, this profile belongs to this person on the tree, and then that basically automatically fills in, well, that's got to be the same YSTR profile as all these other male relatives uh, on that side of the family, which can then, you know, go out with this database to um, even people that have never even been involved in the database, uh, or people that, you know, you maybe not even realize because then, okay, that's that person. You go up to these four levels, this great-grandfather, and that's the same name and date of birth as someone else has uploaded to the database. So that's going to be all YSTRs for that whole branch of the family, and they never even uploaded anything with 23andMe. And they can just kind of spread out from there as to whose Y profile is uploaded to this basically nonprofit you know, company that doesn't even do any kind of genetic testing. It's just a place for amateur genealogists to uh, upload and share data with each other. Right. A, a public warehouse for, for data. To kind of continue on with this story, um, the investigators find that. They find this family that matches. Uh, they start looking at male people from this family uh, about this age range. Um, and uh, they first find this guy in Oregon. And um, he's in a nursing home, and they go up and they get a court order to get a sample from him. 
get the sample, oh, find yeah, out. So, so, so they actually did have a court order. This wasn't surreptitious, like try to steal DNA of that he threw away. They went up with a court order, so they would have had to have PC to to go and get this. True, the PC that they gave was all of this genetic information. Mm-hmm. So they went and got this court order. That's I guess I'm not 100. That's just kind of what I've read so far on that. They run his now full profile against the full profile of the um, you know the crime scene uh, DNA, and it doesn't match. Yeah. Um, so they keep looking, keep looking. They find another um, potential person of this family, and this time uh, they just surveil him, um, and they see him throw out something that you know probably has his DNA on it, say a straw or a you know, water bottle or something, collect that, take it back to the lab, uh, get a profile, compare it to the uh, crime scene sample, and now this is a match. Um, and then shortly after that, they arrest Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. The evidence against him is pretty overwhelming, uh, with, I believe, at least eight of the rapes and or homicides having, you know, direct DNA uh, evidence full profiles uh, matched to him plus just the timeline of where he was living and when he was living there completely matching this entire scenario do you know if they found any other physical evidence to tie it together trophies or any of those sorts of things that you might i suspect that probably wouldn't be in the news yet but boy that would really you know tie it together nicely because i mean obviously right the profile, I mean, the profile is going to be the same in all these cases. We already know that they've all, all been linked. If it leads to additional evidence, and that's really the, the nail in the coffin, where you can't argue that this is just uh, one of those lotteries when it comes to DNA, that there's this random match probability. And even though he probably matches at lots and lots and lots of STR sites, I'm assuming that they probably have plenty that they match him at. You know, I'm still going to argue the random match probability that he's just the winner of a lottery. A shitty lottery, but a lottery, <laughs> nonetheless, right. if you will. Um, I, I I haven't seen that. Again, you, you may be right that they just haven't, re- may, may not have released uh, this part of it yet. It's, it's, lo- it's the trophies. And that's what, I mean, that's, we, exactly. we know these guys keep something. They have to have something. like. It would not surprise me if there's some warehouse, not a warehouse, um, a storage facility or something that he has where he's got something, underwear, a sock pantyhose something from these scenes it just it, that, that's what i'm i'm going to expect that they got to find something eventually at some point i'll hold out to see if uh we see some other evidence develop out of this it'd be it'd, it'd be interesting to follow right right so in general the the news is making uh big stories about how helpful is this going to be for law enforcement should it be used you know um, is should the police just not be doing this? Um, California has a law saying you can only do this if it's the last resort, which I don't know, I'm not sure what exactly it's, that's written to actually do, but the, the big debate ever since this has come out is, well, can we use it to find more killers? They're talking about finding the Zodiac killer. In more in general, should this be something that in as a society we allow the police to do? Right. And I think uh, towards the end, we'll probably cover those, those, some of those questions a little bit. And you and I haven't talked about this, so it'll be interesting to bounce a few things off of each other. So um, that's going to lead us into our next case. Yes. 
And the this case, I I, I want to thank a friend of mine, uh, Rebecca, uh, out there in the Golden State area, there the the Bay Area, and uh, she had uh, sent me this as a link and suggested that maybe we get a chance to you know look at this case. And this is and then when the this was I think a week or so before the Golden State Killer came out, so it was really timely. Right. And uh, this this case, this Angie Dodge case, was featured on the next four or the the first 48 or uh, 48 hours 48 hours one of the 48 shows <laughs> and angie dodges this case on idaho in 1996 she's an 18 year old uh, girl who is killed and uh, she's brutally murdered and stabbed uh, might have been stomped and some other things but looks like she was sprung upon by an intruder brutally murdered they don't think that there was any rape but the killer after murdering her ejaculates at the scene and leaves a fairly pristine semen sample at the scene. And they have some suspects in mind and some people that that they talk to uh, ongoing at the time of this uh, investigation. And particularly the investigation turns towards someone by the name of Christopher Tapp, Chris Tapp. And they they interview him and they it's the the classic bring him in. He's not all that smart. They bring him in for days and question him and coerce him. And at some point, I'm sure we'll do some episodes on, I don't know, Eric, did you ever watch the confession tapes on, on Netflix? Oh, no, but I, I watched I watch the uh, the 48 Hours um, special uh, earlier uh, today on, on this case, and they showed some of the clips and oh good lord it's just awful and um, it's right back to brendan dassey and so exactly like, we know we already know just tell us and you'll you know and, and and it's the classic i thought i had to keep going until i told them something they wanted to hear and then i could go it's the the classic thing you hear in all yep. of these and i'm at some point we'll probably do an episode on the netflix uh the confession tapes it's it's a brilliant little mini series and covers five or six cases just like this with these terrible confessions well in this one it's you know it's like we you know you know we know it's your friend we and then they lie to him we already have evidence that it's this guy you know this friend of yours that did this um you know and you know, right away like the first day he's just not there and um over and over and over again you know they they keep um, doing more and more and more uh, interviews, and, and they're all suggestive. So, all right, so now exactly. you were there, all right, but you weren't doing anything, right? So you, or okay, now you're there, and this you're is what the down. house layout was, you right. know, like all right. these details, and they put them through. I think it was seven polygraphs, yeah, and um, and finally, like they get him to say like he was there, promising if you tell the truth, uh, <laughs> they give him a deal. You tell the truth, then. Um, you can go free, no charges. Right. Um, and they even, after he finally admits to being there, they give him a high five, like, oh, thank God, you know, um, you know, good job. Yeah, and, and he gave a bunch of names of individuals who were there as well. And again, he's making up names. At some point, though, he does give a name of some guy by the name of Mike. He doesn't Mike. really know who he is, but Mike is there. Now, the most important critical part of this is the semen sample, the DNA from that, does not match Chris Tapp. Not a match. Right. So this is, you know, so in, in the, that their, their theory is, well, he must have been there. He was involved. And one of these other guys must match this. But when they do actually talk to his other friends, there's a couple of other guys that Chris Tapp 
implicates and then some other mysterious guys that Chris Tapp implicates. All the people they check, none of those people match this DNA sample either. And since uh, they don't match, then the officers say, well, then you lied to us saying that they were there. Right. Um, but now since you've admit- admitted to being there and admitted, you know, this this friend of yours that we've now eliminated and we know wasn't there, you said he made you cut this lady. So now you've admitted to cutting this lady and you've admitted to being there. So now you're going to be on trial and sentenced to 30 years. Right. And and uh, two years later, in 98, they have the trial. And he's convicted and not even not, not even close. He, he is convicted. And as you said, you know, gets gets 30 years, uh, you know, a, you know, life sentence and more. So. All right. And um, years go by. And ultimately, at, at some point, they are trying to, you know, identify this particular sample, this DNA sample. Um, I don't know if you ever learned why they kept this open. I mean, if they convict this guy, this Chris Tapp, um, you know, I, I don't, I didn't get, I didn't find the relationship of why they continued that. Did the Innocence Project get involved and then? Eventually, tra- yes. Um, and uh, the for- 48 Hour Special has some uh, talks extensively with the DNA expert who's also the director of the Idaho Innocence Project and is pretty involved in many other innocent projects around the country and around the world named uh, Greg Hampikian. And, and but Hampikian. The, the reason why th- this is coming up is the, the mom of the victim is continually pushing for who killed my daughter. Like, who was the one who, re- you know, she's really, you know, gung-ho about keeping this guy that was convicted in jail. Um, but she knows that it was another guy, maybe maybe someone named Mike, that really was the one who did the multiple stabbings and who the semen belonged to. And she is continually pushing uh, for the police to find out who this person is. Right. So, again, very similar to the previous case, they do start looking at these um, public DNA databases. So they, again, do the same thing. They they know that it, they're different kinds of samples. So they do this YSTR breakdown and they go into you know this database and they try to find these matches and 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 in a series of markers I think it's like 45 or something 36 is it 36 I thought it was yeah up, yeah 36 yeah. okay so 36 different markers that, the, that they're looking for they're going through to try to find something close to that so this database is called the Sorensen database. Did you look into this? I did. This is the Sorensen database. Uh, yeah, I spent the most time because it's a, okay. it's, pretty, it's pretty fascinating. But again, it's like we discussed earlier. It is. It, it was originally started as this free public database by this right. philanthropist and researcher because they basically wanted the human genealogy mapped out. So they wanted everyone contributing. The idea was if everyone put their DNA into this, we could map the entire human race and go back, you know, all these centuries and so forth. The the interesting so their stated aim was to demonstrate how closely all humans are related in an effort to kind of bring people together. But there's there's a this there's this other reason why this this database get started you can kind of start to find the thread here because it, it starts with this philanthropist named Sorensen um, and some other researchers and it starts at BYU Brigham Young University in Utah in 2000 uh, it's eventually purchased by ancestry.com in 2012 
but in that uh, time frame, uh, they get 100,000 DNA samples and family trees, including the names in all these family trees, up to 2.8 million people and 2.4 million genotypes. Yeah, and they would go into these small towns and have these churches, just everyone in the church group or, you know, in Utah and Idaho and you know, northwestern United States and just grab all these community groups and everyone just have a big DNA day and then upload all this information. And the, the, this, is, this is really focused in the Mormon church. Right. Um, uh, so which is why this is all like, you know, Idaho, Utah, uh, Oregon, like where this is all kind of centered. Um, and the reason kind of behind all this, and uh, I'm sure you've uh, heard or understand how big genealogy is to uh, the Mormon faith. Uh, are you familiar with this, Glenn? I'm not. I mean, I, I know that you're, you know, you've lived in some Mormon communities. I have not. I right. only know about Mormons from the Book of Mormon, uh, you know, the Trey Parker play and <laughs> right. what's on that's South Park. That's a great Park, play. Frankly. I love that play. And the South um, Park episode. That's uh, that's about it. So, um, yeah, living here in Arizona, my dad was actually born in Salt Lake City. So if you ever want to find genealogical records, Salt Lake City is the place to go. That's like genealogical capital of the world. Even as far back as like the 20s and 30s, uh, it was an important part of the Mormon faith to find out who all your ancestors were. So they'd actually send Mormons all the way back to Europe. Um, since it was too expensive for every Mormon to go back to Europe, they'd send people just to make copy after copy after copy of all of these uh, genealogical records from towns th um, throughout Europe. And uh, like entire town records have been saved from Germany that was totally bombed out because they were copied and brought over to Utah. Um, and the reason behind all this is that Mormons have this thing called baptism for the dead, which is a belief that you can only go to heaven if you've been baptized. But if you weren't baptized, then one of your living relatives of the same sex can get a proxy baptism for you. And then in the afterlife, you get to, do, to decide whether you accept or reject the proxy baptism for you. But it's a big thing where you have to figure out who all your ancestors were so you can get baptized for them so that they can go to heaven. I didn't know any of that. That's fascinating. We need so a whole I, episode on that, man. <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, I knew that, like, Mormons and genealogy were, like, linked together. Uh, I just never knew why. So, doing, I'm doing this research, I was like, oh, well, that's why they're actually doing all this. Uh, so, continuing back on with the Angie Dodge case, some guy in a small town in Idaho gets uh, his DNA swab, you know, swab and genealogical record entered into the Sorensen database, and then the Idaho Falls Police Department comes in, uh, looks, uh, you know, searches through the database, um, and gets a name. Right. And so the the name that they develop is this Michael Usry, and um, this is the father. And then, uh, based on the age and the time and everything, there's this Michael Usry Jr. And then, so their attention focuses to this guy, Michael Usry jr mike mike which then clicks for the idaho falls police now idaho falls uh, is in southeastern uh, idaho and the um they start doing this investigation of him uh, and they find a couple of things that stand out uh the mike thing the the next thing is that this guy is living down in louisiana he's down in new orleans 
and he's a filmmaker but more of a producer and when they look at the movies that he's produced they all tend to have some sort of violence or dealing with death or murder in fact one of the the movies is murder murderabilia having to do which with, is oh yeah go ahead yeah the mem it's it's about kind of the grisly practice of collecting memorabilia from killers right um and oh look you know which is which is worth more you know the um i don't know a lamp from you know charles uh, manson charles manson or the knife from ted bundy you know all this kind of like grisly stuff right and a whole movie about it right. exactly and the and so of course this just all right so this guy's obsessed with death and murder and you know as a filmmaker did he try to create his own murder movie you know thing in in real life but then the crazy part of this and this is just this this goes back to Mayfield to me these crazy coincidences where you go come on you gotta be kidding me so. When they they investigate a little bit about the timeline about this Michael Ustry Jr., besides the fact of the, the fascination with, with murder, they find that he had actually taken a trip with some friends, and they went to Rexburg, Idaho. I, I don't know this town. Maybe you know it. But it's about 30 miles northeast-ish or so of Idaho Falls. And okay. so in order to get to Rexburg, Idaho, where he travels with his friends, they pass right through Idaho Falls at around the same time when the murder happens. So this guy... That was one of the oh, yeah, question I had was, was is it... Because was it, watching the video, it, they talk about how he had actually been to Idaho... What I wasn't clear on was if it was the timeline, how close it was in time to the actual murder. Sure. I, I got I, – you're exactly right. All it said was that around the same time. Oh, okay. And okay. That, and he couldn't account for his whereabouts on that night. And he even says, yeah, I was, I was there. I was in Idaho at the time that that happened. That's insane. <laughs> it's it's absolutely insane, and and if you're a police officer, and right now you got three independent things that have just clicked. This is right. You got your guy. I mean, I don't fault them well, one bit here. And the the profile matched at thirty five of thirty six uh, loci from the this database that they've they've done. Uh, so it wasn't a perfect match, but it was you know thirty five out of thirty six. Right. So then the uh, cops basically travel down to um, uh, Louisiana where they meet with Michael Osprey Jr. They have a court order to get his DNA. They have a warrant. And, you know, he doesn't know why they've shown up on their doorstep. There's no, you know, <laughs> and they haven't given him a phone call or any warning. They just show up on his doorstep, ask if he has ever been to idaho if he knows you know this place knows but he doesn't he doesn't know he doesn't even know why they're there they don't tell him anything about this case he doesn't know what's going on but they say right you're a suspect potentially in this case we have a court order to get your dna he's freaking out they take his dna and they interview him for a few and, hours and, right exactly and they interview him and he doesn't know what to say in fact he's smart enough to go i don't think i should be talking about this without a lawyer what are you charging me with what do you think i'm involved in and they never tell him in fact it isn't until they leave that he goes on the internet talks to some friends back home and in idaho and says hey what what's going on here and they say oh yeah there's this murder this this and that and then he puts it all together and they and he, you know 
he's he's now realizing he is the key suspect in this and he thinks his nightmare is just starting and as someone who knew it was savvy enough to know a little bit about some of these cases and these things going on you've got to be sitting there especially if you're innocent going oh my god this is a nightmare and now you know he is being so his name is being associated with this case he is a suspect uh, you know he, he's he's reeling and it, it turns out that when they go back to the lab and they work up the DNA on this, now he doesn't find out for 30 days later, but it makes sense. It's about how long it takes to get a DNA case out like that. When, right. they, when they do the STRs, it's not him. Uh, they compare it to the crime scene sample. They compare his DNA. It doesn't match. And they can effectively eliminate him as a source of that DNA. But, again, for 30 days and in the news and the media, he's now been associated with this. And, you know, and it gets into some interesting questions again. We'll probably touch on these very soon here about some of the, you know, at what point, you know, should these names be released? At what point is it okay, you know, for his reputation to get dragged into this? And then they, you know, find out that it's not him. Unlike the Golden State Killer where, okay, you know, they do get the match. But, you know, and again, you know. They they get the match in that case, but now his name is still out there. He hasn't had his trial yet. He you know, but he's certainly been convicted in the media and in the public. And, <laughs> right. And, and we've even referred to him as already you know. So that's the guy. You know, you and I seem pretty convinced, but you know, we don't know all the evidence in this case. So, two True. two interesting cases where one 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 worked out well for the guy in the end because it, it wasn't his. But for thirty days, he's you know living a personal nightmare. Well, uh, to kind of close out the Idaho Falls uh, case, the Michael Usri, Usri Jr. guy is eventually uh, cleared. They start investigating other relatives to see if they might be involved. Eventually, they find, the police do release a statement saying that they basically cleared the entire Usri family right. from being involved in the case. Right, so it's not even a relative of his or someone close. They've just completely eliminated the whole right. whole line. So they're still looking for the owner of of um, of this DNA sample. And, and, um, and cool addendum to this, now Michael Ustry, who was working on a project at the time, has now sort of teamed up with the mother of Angie Dodge and started doing a documentary on this. So now he's actually, you know, getting involved in, in filming this and documenting uh, this process to try to find the you know the real killer of Angie Dodge, which it's it's got a nice ending to it, and I think that's really cool. And I hope you get funding and other things to continue right. this. And I I truly hope they're able to catch catch the person who did this. They're so close, but they're not. You know, they don't have a but person not yet. yet. Not right. Yet. But the then the other guy who was convicted, um, Chris Tapp. His name Chris Tapp. Yeah. Um, after being in prison for 20 years, um, after about 15 years or so, the mom of the victim um, you know, finally learns more about uh, the testing and learns more about what happened. Um, and they, they, they go back and they look not just at the police interview tapes, but the lie detector test tapes, the polygraph tapes. Um, which revealed some serious problems with how that all went down. Right. And um, they they start pushing the mom and the convict, and actually now uh, Michael Usry Jr., uh, all three are starting to kind of push to get this guy out. 
Um, and uh, so they're working towards that when uh, prosecutors um, decide to offer a deal for basically eliminating the rape charge that he was convicted of since the DNA didn't belong to him and being in jail for 20 years saying, okay, for the murder, you've already served your time. You can get out. Um, so he kind of, he and his lawyer, they jump on that deal and he's been released. The mom is convinced he wasn't involved at all and is still pushing to find the, the real killer. Yeah. And like you said, uh, us free as a filmmaker is, uh, is participating in this now as well. Yeah, that's uh, it's a really amazing you know story here with two instances of using these uh, genealogy databases. Now, one thing we didn't make clear, and now's a good time, is that this is different than the familial matching that we're seeing with convicted offender databases. This is quite different. I mean, it's the same. It's the same idea, but in those, they are using convicted offender DNA that match up right. certain STRs, the autosomal you know, nuclear DNA. They're looking at those and finding close matches, but not quite matches, investigating and finding, oh, yeah, that's the brother of this person. So um, this is it, – it, it's a very similar concept, but now you've got convicted offender DNA to which the law enforcement you know, has a legitimate right to use – in which that they use for the near miss to go after a family or investigate further to see if there's a brother, a mother, or father who might have been the contributor of DNA at the crime scene, and those also are all tied into this. I mean, all all of this is is very similar. It's using near misses, if you will, in the database. You're off by just a couple yeah. of numbers to investigate further to see if there is a connection, someone related to that individual responsible for these crimes and and not surprisingly it raises a number of questions about ethics morals legality the science and civil rights and if uh i just thought maybe we take a couple of minutes to explore those a little bit if if you're up for that all right yeah um real real quick the the sorensen database that was used for the idaho falls case has been closed down it is you can't get in anymore um again like i said it's owned by ancestry.com but uh, after it hit the news about how it was used in the Idaho Falls case, uh, the, the Ancestry.com is now the owner of all that, uh, shut it down. Uh, the GEDmatch website is still up. It's still doing exactly what it had always been doing. Uh, they made clear to the people, you know, when they uploaded stuff that, you know, whatever they upload is just out there for anyone to use and reference. Um, they haven't really done anything wrong allowing this to be freely and openly available because that's what it always was. Right. And, and, and you're absolutely right. It always was meant for this public use of data knowledge sharing. The question right. becomes is, but was that meant for investigative purposes? So the first question I think in this in this science and, and ethics realm, is, I would say is on privacy. Is your DNA profile private? Well, um, my first answer to that is not when you upload it to a public database, just like your information on Facebook is True. private. But the minute you load it up and say, well, here you go, then I say no, because you have now just put it out into the world. 
Well, and to that end, in this case, the people that were you know found through these searches, they didn't upload their stuff. Someone who was related to them uploaded this stuff. Ah, that that's where it gets interesting. Yes, but again, they did it with their DNA. But if your your Y profile is the same as you, you, you have a brother, right, Glenn? I I have several. <laughs> This is the same as your brother's wife profile. And they may be in some STR databases somewhere. <laughs> there you go. Um, then is your wife profile yours? Is it private when it's the same profile as your brother's and your dad's and your right. uncle's and your grandpa's? Yeah, it's the, fa- um, it's the family's profile. Right. It, it's not really yours to do with what you want. Uh, if someone else uploads it, then then they upload it. If someone else leaves your YSTR profile at a crime scene because they killed somebody, then they chose to leave to commit a crime and leave your shared Y profile at a crime scene. So it's kind of hard to maintain this idea of your genetic profile being private when it's, I mean, it. it you're unique, but not part that unique. Part of it is, yeah, part of it is, part of it's, most of it's the same as every other human. The parts that make you unique are unique to you. Yeah. But parts of it are, you know, your parents and your siblings and, and all your other relatives. Right. Now, this is sort of, you know, the, the privacy aspect. Let's Let's look at the legality. Other than D.C. and Maryland, who have passed laws now saying that you cannot do that for these purposes. Although, I mean, the, I'm curious if their laws pertain to the genealogy. I believe those laws have been referring to the convicted offender database. Yeah, I think that's just for familial testing in the convicted offender database. Right. So it'll be interesting if, if they meant it for these purposes as well. We'll have to see if, if you know where that goes. I don't know. I'm not sure either. But other than that, states haven't really caught up to this yet. And states are, and and, and most states are, have been, I think, trying to get these cases, you know, knowing that it's a hot topic. And whenever it would come up, it would say, well, we're, you know, we're using it for just a handful of cases. Often states that were using this had these rules for the kinds of cases, like you said, a last resort, and it had right. to meet certain criteria. And they had, they couldn't just be a standard rape case. It had to be the more egregious kinds of rape cases. And this was common in lots of states. They knew that this would had the potential to just you know blow up into a you know hot button, but they were using it judiciously for the kinds of cases that they wanted to to try to find closure on. But it's technically legal in forty nine. 49 other states at this point and and i think the way that both of these states did it i I don't think it's technically illegal in anywhere um in the u.s to do it again this specific way of referring to a database of publicly available information to um to provide a lead in general um especially with the 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 more open one, the the Jed match, um, which is what they used for uh, the the Golden State Killer. Um, that one, I don't, I don't really have any problem with with the police, you know, uploading 
or we're searching through a, you know, a large database of Y profiles to see if the family is in there uh, and then, you know, make leading on to other stuff from there. Mm-hmm. Um, at that level, do you have any issues with it? Well, again, I'm trying to separate this out. When you say issues, do you mean ethical, moral? Yeah, the more the ethical, moral side. No, I don't because I'm, I'm not a rapist. <laughs> I'm not a serial killer. <laughs> so, no. Um, and, you know, I... <laughs> I tend You heard it here first, folks. Glenn Lingenberg, <laughs> not a murderer. <laughs> I, I I tend to probably swing a little bit libertarian on some views, but this is one of those where for the greater good of society, I don't have a problem with this. I, right. We've all entered into society with this contract here, and I, I don't have a problem if the government – I think the government should have a right to track its people. To a point, to know who lives in the society and have basic information because, you know, we all have to submit to a census. And yep. uh, I don't have a problem with everyone having fingerprints in a database or DNA in a database. ACLU swings very far the other way on that, you know, only if right. you've convicted a crime. I don't have – I tend to swing the way of – Surprising pragmatism. Yeah, I th- that and maybe it's working in criminal justice all these years, not having anything to hide in a criminal record, and and I think it's okay for the government to ask for your naturalization papers, your uh, you know uh, citizenship, your identity, your uh, I I think there's all things that it's okay to be identified in a society. I I I think that's. A responsibility that we all have is to properly identify ourselves. And if that leads to you <laughs> somehow being associated <laughs> with your crimes, well, tough shit. Stop breaking the law, and that's kind of <laughs> solves that problem. This also just in, Glenn Lingenberg is the man. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and now here's where I go the other way, though. And maybe this is the science part of it. As right. long as... And, and here's where it always gets messed up. As long as the government is responsible with that information. And yep. unfortunately, they do not have a great track record of that responsibility. <laughs> and that's, that's where we see these cases of miscarriage of justices or, you know, um, like, you know, if they approach the person too soon and, and give a public name, we think that this person is, you know, this killer. And it turns out that they're, they're not. Uh, what what how they handle that information are they as careful with that information if are they as careful with it if it was their own information or their own family member yeah are they treating it the same way and in some of these cases no they're not and that that's where i have the issue so on the one hand ideally theoretically no problem but it's the execution of it I think the these cases really illustrate um, maybe not the far extremes, but absolutely two different sides of how to execute it. Uh, with the Idaho Falls side, I mean, to the point of releasing the guy's name before you even do the confirmatory test that easily exonerated him and then later his entire family... So now if you search that guy's name, it doesn't come up with whatever, you know, low budget movie he's produced. It comes up with this, uh, this homicide from Idaho. Um, that's pretty, pretty obvious, not the right way to do it. If you go over to the Golden State Killer, 
I think that's more the way to do it. You know, they went, they didn't, uh, they went first to that guy in Oregon. And uh, again, I don't remember all the details specifically, but it sounds like they asked him for his profile. They had a court order as well, but they asked him, explained the situation. The guy gave it voluntarily. They cleared him and moved on. When they came across their next suspect, um, they, they lawfully obtained a discarded uh, item that would have DNA on it, had that tested, confirmed with autosomal, you know, the full profile, all 23 chromosomes, or 46, I guess, technically, um, that it was him, uh, and then arrested him uh, and made the, the big announcement. I, I really have a hard time finding almost any faults with how the Golden State Killer yeah. process worked where there are absolutely multiple faults with how the Idaho Falls uh, uh, case worked. Right. Now, one thing we haven't really talked about is, you know, the weakness of the science or what are some of the potential errors of this approach. Yes. And, you know, we're running out of time here, but I am hopeful we can get some DNA folks on and maybe in the next couple of weeks to discuss some of that and and hear from their perspective. You and I aren't DNA experts. Um but you know, it'd be nice to uh, to get a, a perspective. Did do you have any any thoughts though about the the science? Uh, I think you're right that we should leave it maybe up to some real experts on DNA um, and not just our our amateur association to this topic. I will say one thing stood out for me, and you said you didn't actually you just read the article, you didn't watch the 48 hours video. Correct. Okay. So the uh, the DNA expert uh, Greg Hampikian that was on there um, said something that really stuck out to me um, and uh, kind of goes back to some recent topics uh, in talking about the um, the sample that was collected from the scene at the Idaho Falls murder. Uh, quote: It's a single profile, complete identification, one man to the exclusion of everyone on the planet. Hmm. Mm. I I'm curious what DNA people would say about that. I I would be, but it definitely has wording similar to what we've gone through in Latent Prince. That just that phrasing piqued my interest on that side of things, um, which you know may also speak to the uh, uh, the reliability or accuracy level of of um, some of these workups here. So I I have to admit, Eric, I do have a, a final funny thought on this. <laughs> Okay. Because it's been such a light topic. <laughs> right, right. Now, I was like, okay, go ahead, Glenn. I mean, with all this attention in the media, I'm just picturing the next time that these big families get together for Thanksgiving or for Christmas oh, dinner, no. and the father sitting at the table, you know, the grandfather, whatever, who was a serial rapist 30 years ago, is trying to find a subtle way to broach this topic of, so, did... Uh, did, uh, I don't suppose any of you submitted your DNA to these genealogical sites. <laughs> Why, Grandpa? Why asking? You know, just oh, uh, no reason. No reason. Just, just, I just, just curious. Yeah. Just wondering if you were looking into our family a little bit. I mean, not because I'm a rapist or anything, but just, uh, just, just, <laughs> just, just wondering. <laughs> Can you imagine how, how many people right now must be just crapping their pants, wondering if one of their, you know, their their children right. or grandchildren have submitted. Uh, you know their their DNA sample, knowing that the the you know the, the net is is coming after them and the noose is tightening. You know what? I, I I all I can say is I hope so. I hope 
in general, this hasn't scared the public away from uh, these databases, but made them more aware that it, even just doing the 23andMe isn't really going to get you there. You got to go onto jedmatch.com and make it uh, make your profile and your family's profile available to everybody in the world without limitation, and uh, and that can lead to the capture of more of these monsters. Wow, uh, well said. All right, so, sir. Um, all right, let's see. Let's yeah, let's close up here quick because we're long, but um, it was a good topic and uh, we had a lot to say on it. So. Uh, email us glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com especially if you are a non-latent print person uh, let us know that you listen let us know which episodes you like um, and uh, we want to hear from you and we want to continue to develop and broaden uh, our interest brace here please double check our patreon page and just search for Double Loop Podcast on Patreon. Our opinions are our own. Listen to us every week on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on iTunes. Give us those five-star ratings to uh, uh, to let the rest of the, of the podcast world know how awesome we are. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye.